as messaging goes. The uh, Torah portion for this morning speaks about a message of justice and order and legality. I mean, after all, the name of the portion, Shoftim, Judges, sets the tone for what the reading is. And the ancient rabbis of Jewish tradition saw the same message too. And they would go on to teach that any place that does not have a school, that doesn't have hospitals, and doesn't have courts, you're not allowed to live there. Which is to say that you shouldn't want to live in a place where there is no way to education of children, where there is no way to heal the ill, and there is no way to protect the innocent or the weak. Those are the obvious messaging points from this morning's Torah portion, but I don't want to talk about them. I wanted to talk about something else of this portion, the 48th of 56 in the entire Torah, which is addressing the people as they stand on the cusp of heading into the land of Israel. There they were needing to answer not only what their home would look like, but where would each tribe live? Where would they settle? Who would be the ruler and who would be the ruled? But also when asking these kinds of questions, it asks a kind of meta or larger question that hangs over all of this, which is as the people stand on the cusp of the Jordan, ready to enter into the land of Israel, they're also asking, how can this promised land be made into a land of promise? The Torah answers that with a swirl of shouts and shout nots that fill the portion. But in many ways, all those laws only add to the question, what will you choose to be? About 12 years ago, at one of our humanitarian dinners, we, are, we honored uh, the great Canadian film director, Norman Jewison. Jewison's craft and film are legend. Think about some of the movies he made. Moonstruck, I believe it's the only comedy that ever won an Oscar for Best Picture. The Thomas Crown Affair, Justice for All, Agnes of God, and of course the movie, Fiddler on the Roof. To this day, I consider it my good fortune to be seated next to him all evening long. And he told me the story of how we got the nod to direct Fiddler on the Roof. Now, he was off filming another movie on location when he receives this telegram. This is way before there were cell phones and emails and faxes. So he gets a telegram and that the head of the Paramount studio wanted to see him. So he sent back that he was busy on location and he asked if it could wait and he was told no, it couldn't. So Paramount sent a plane to his location and flew him back to Hollywood. And he walks into the office of the president of Paramount and at this point in the story he tells me, you know, Rabbi, no disrespect, but this guy, the president of Paramount, he was a big Jew. Anyways, he tells Norman Jewison to sit down and he proceeds to tell him that he's been awarded the job to direct Fiddler on the Roof, which at that time was an enormous hit on Broadway. And Jewison was overwhelmed and he shakes his hand and repeats over and over again, thank you, thank you, thank you. But then he told him the film crew were waiting for him and the plane was waiting too. And so he left to go out of the office. And he places his hands on the door and he slowly begins to turn the door handle when the president of Paramount yells out to him and says, and Jewison, make sure you make a movie the Goyim will understand. 
And Jewison tells him, Norma's Jewison is not Jewish, by the way. <laughs> and Jewison tells him, I don't think that's what you should be worrying about right now. And at the dinner, I shared with him my favorite scene from the movie. It's on the evening when the Russian police chief comes to Tevya and quietly pulls him aside and shares with him the news that the authorities had given permission for a pogrom in the shtetl of Anatevka. And the police chief makes him promise not to tell anyone, but perhaps he can save himself and his family. And that night, walking home, under a clear and starry sky, Tevya looks to the heaven and says, I know that we are the chosen people, but couldn't you choose someone else every once in a while? That question, of course, began with the fear that millions of Jews in the late 1800s felt in Russia when Tsar Alexander II would return the country to legalize persecution and abuse against their Jewish communities. And it would be those Jews who would jump on the boats to North America and what would become Israel. But when Tevye asked, couldn't you choose someone else every now and then? It's also a question for our time. It asks, why do we need this? The truth is I spend a lot of time on this question because I believe that it is the question of defining who and what we are. This moment that we live in is a moment of unprecedented freedom and wealth and choice. We live in a time where even people who believe in God can't or won't accept that God is demanding that they eat kosher food or they observe Shabbat. If many of us still wish to be Jewish, then it must be for other reasons. There must be another pull that makes this something that should not be lost. It's something that is important. Because we live in a moment of profound disconnection, not of connections, and it's not accidental. It's not your fault. It's the fulfillment of the dream of individualism that fueled the rise of the great Western democracies. They spoke and taught and encouraged the pursuit of freedom and happiness, the freedom of expression, the right to be who you want. If he lived today, Tevye would have said, me and not us. And yes, this individualism has given great things to the world that we live in. The demand of gender equality, the demand of racial equality, the demand of sexual equality. But it also created what I call the uber eatsification of the world that you live in. Which sees a world being made that caters and supports to what you want. Your comfort, your ease of building a life that makes sense to you. A life that makes me feel happy. And if you paid attention, that's a lot of yous in just a few words. But that's where we're living these days. Many of those immigrants who jumped on the boats to North America saw the break from religious life and its practices as symbols of freedom. It says that I can choose to eat this or that. Go here or go there that I can choose to do whatever I want on this day or on that day. And they're right. The freedom to choose what you wish to do is a special and modern thing. And it's a good one too. Because I'm a product of that as well. Having traveled through an extensive Orthodox education for most of my early years. 
you're adult enough to know that every blessing in life comes with a caution. Like most advances, there is a consequence to be reckoned with, which never at the moment seems real, despite it being true. It's the consequence of losing a connection to a tradition so deeply, profoundly transformative, which can make your life more than you can possibly imagine. Which is to say, despite that happiness is nothing compared to goodness, we humans always reach for happiness first, often to painful results. And that's our question for this morning. Just like the one that the Israelites face at the beginning of the Torah reading, what will we choose to be? The answer will come this morning. But first, some music and some more prayers. Everyone, please rise. Welcome back, guys. We miss them. <laughs> They're amazing. See? You should follow them on Twitter, by the way. After Shabbat, click on it. Not now, but, you know, afterwards. So I left you with a question in a time of unprecedented freedom of choice. How do we choose this? Sometimes answers come in very surprising places. This past summer, I was in Israel, and my wife and I had a curator tour of the Israel Museum, in particular the Shrine of the Book, where the manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. For those of you who have been there, you know it's this iconic building where the top of the building actually looks like an upside-down dreidel. It's a replica of the caps, the covers, that were on the cylinders that the manuscripts were stored in down in the Judean desert. And the curator, who's a friend of mine, led us through and showed us some of the new things. And then at the very end of our tour, he took us into the Israel Museum proper, and there was a newly opened exhibition about the life of Ilan Ramon. Ramon was Israel's sole astronaut who ended up dying tragically in the Columbia shuttle disaster. The curator told us, that every astronaut on a space shuttle is given a diary. And on this diary, they write their technical notes and also personal observations that the diary would be kept by NASA as a memento, an historical record of the trip. Ilan Ramon not only took his diary with him, Ilan Ramon also took a painting from a child holocaust Victim, and also a Sefer Torah that had been used in Bergen-Belsen to covertly bar mitzvah children during the war. Ilan Ramon's story beyond that is remarkable. He himself was a child of Holocaust survivors. He became a pilot in the Israeli Air Force, and he was a commander of the Israeli raid on the Iraqi nuclear plant at Osirak. He was chosen to be Israel's astronaut. Now you know what happens. The Columbia shuttle, upon re-entry, explodes in the air. And after that happened, NASA put out a call because they wanted to recover as much of the debris as possible to explore and try to figure out what happened. In the end, they only recovered about 40% of all the debris from the shuttle that had exploded. 
and a call had went out by NASA to all the surrounding communities for them to scour and look for any kind of debris they did. And two months later, Indian trackers walking outside of a Texas town named Palestine find the words STS-106, the name of that shuttle mission, and non-English writing, and they call NASA, and NASA dispatches a team to pick it up. It was Ilan Ramon's diary, 37 pages of it, not only with technical notes, but personal observations of living in space. He also wrote down the words to the Shabbat Kiddush that he recited on the first Shabbat in space. And as I walked out of that exhibition, I asked myself, how is it possible that his was the only one to survive in that explosion? His diary. And then I asked myself, if there is a God who controls these things, then that God chose right. Because Ilan Ramon, although he died, his words fell into the hands of the people who do not forget things. Before I left the museum, my friend, the curator, brought me into the back along with my wife, and he showed me some of the pages that were not on display. The very last page of Ilan Ramon's diary quotes from the book of Joshua before the people were crossing into the land of Israel after Moses dies. And he wrote these two words, Chazak Ve'amatz, be strong and courageous. What do I choose to be? I chose to be a part of this, so I could be a part of that. It is to be a part of a people who makes promised lands into lands of promise because they courageously and bravely never let go of the story that they've been chosen to hold. Shabbat Shalom.